This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Talk Nerdy. Today is Monday, August 20th, 2018, and I'm your host, Cara Santa Maria. And today's episode is brought to you by the upcoming film, Kin, coming to theaters and IMAX everywhere August 31st. Starring Zoe Kravitz, James Franco, Dennis Quaid, Jack Rayner, and introducing Miles Truitt from the directing duo Jonathan and Josh Baker, executive producer Michael B. Jordan, and the producers who brought you Stranger Things and Arrival. Kin is an original pulse-pounding sci-fi crime thriller that tells the story of Eli, a teenage boy who's forced on the run with a mysterious weapon as his only protection against a vengeful criminal and two otherworldly soldiers. Following his older brother's release from jail, Eli finds a mysterious object in an abandoned building that seems to respond to him uniquely. He doesn't know what it is yet, but holding it seems to activate it, and Eli decides to guard it preciously. When his older brother Jimmy finds himself in trouble with a vengeful criminal he owes a debt, the two brothers are forced to go on the run. And while on their journey, Eli quickly discovers that the powerful weapon he discovered can do more than just provide protection. It may also reveal his destiny. For sci-fi and thriller lovers, this film is filled with suspense, action, self-realization, and also highlights the importance of brotherhood and kinship. Watch the trailer now and be sure to see Kin when it hits theaters and IMAX August 31st. Guys, I want to thank those of you who made Talk Nerdy possible this week by pledging your support via Patreon. And that includes Rob Shrek, Phil T-Bear, The Zombie Drummer, David J.E. Smith, Jeffrey Perez, Charles Payet, Jonathan Wright, Jafe, Gabriel Felipe Jaramillo Gonzalez, Brian Holden, and Jeffrey Sewell. If you're interested in supporting the show, just visit patreon.com slash talknerdy to see all the details. 
All right. I am excited about this week's episode. I have a chance to talk to an environmental journalist named Ben Goldfarb. He covers wildlife conservation, marine science, public lands management, and he also writes fiction. And we'll dive into that a little bit. Uh, his work has been featured pretty much everywhere you've read if you are a talk nerdy listener. Science, Mother Jones, The Guardian, Vice, Audubon. World Wildlife Magazine, Scientific American, and a lot of other publications. But today, we are talking about his brand new book. It's called Eager, The Surprising Secret Life of Beavers and Why They Matter. Yes, I know it sounds strange, but bear with me because this chat is fascinating. So without any further ado, guys, here he is, Ben Goldfarb. Well, Ben, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm so thrilled to talk to you. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Of course. So I never thought I would start a podcast episode this way, but oh my gosh, tell me everything you know about beavers. (laughs) (laughs) Where where to begin? I've learned so much in the last few years. I'm I'm just overwhelmed with with, uh, facts. So (laughs) Okay. So let's start with like why I even asked you that. So you wrote this great book, which I already introed in the intro. So I'm doing a little time travel here. Eager, the surprising secret life of beavers and why they matter. And not only is this a great book, but it's getting so much traction in the science um, media world. Like I've been reading a lot about it. I feel like I'm late to the game interviewing you. <laughs> um, so let's yeah. start. You're, you're a science journalist, an environmental journalist. You, t- you talk a lot about conservation, marine science, stuff like that. And you, oh, you also write fiction. Okay, we'll get to that later. Okay. Um, but so you've published in all sorts of places where a lot of my listeners read. Siam. Um, the Guardian, Vice, Audubon. What made you interested? Because I know you have not been talking about beavers your whole life. What made you want to write a book about beavers? Yeah, it, it only feels like I've been talking about beavers my my, my whole life. Uh, so, like like most people who spend a lot of time hanging out outside, right? I'd, I'd always sort of been around beavers and had kind of like a baseline beaver awareness, right? I, I remember fishing one time and having a beaver swim basically between my legs. Um, you know, oh, I, I wow. some, some appreciation for how cool these these critters are. Uh, but it was really it was really a few years back. I was working for uh, the magazine High Country News, uh, living out in Seattle, and I met this I met this beaver biologist uh, named Kent Woodruff, who uh, at that time was the director of the Metow Beaver Project in, in the Metow Valley in Central Washington. And uh, what what Kent and his his crew were doing basically was just live trapping, quote unquote, nuisance beavers, beavers that were, you know, cutting down people's apple trees or clogging up road culverts or whatever, and relocating those beavers to kind of these, these headwater streams uh, high in the mountains of, of uh, central Washington in the, in the Cascade Range. And it was just, you know, I went to some of the places where, where Kent and his crew had, had moved to these guys. I was so stunned by how dramatically they'd changed the landscape and how much by building dams, how much water they were holding back on the landscape in this, you know, in this pretty dry area. Uh, so it was really being with Kent, you know, who's this, this very gifted naturalist and a really charismatic guy. He just sort of opened my eyes to how incredibly influential these, you know, goofy little furballs are. <laughs> okay, so I think I have to admit, I don't think I've ever seen one in life. What? Karen, we, have to, we have to rectify that. I know, um, we do. Come, how- come visit me. Okay, so where obviously beavers are from all over the place, but do you mostly hang out in the Pacific Northwest? Like, where do you generally have your your beaver run-ins? Yeah, there you know there are so many. I mean, some of the best beaver viewing I've ever had was when, was when um, my wife and I were living in, in Northampton, Massachusetts, kind of in, in Western huh. Mass, 
And, uh, you know, there's a, a beaver, uh, a really beautiful beaver pond uh, called called Fitzgerald Lake, uh, which you guys should all visit. And there's this giant beaver lodge there and the beavers come out regularly every single night. They're sort of like crepuscular uh, or nocturnal. So they kind of come out in, in late evenings. So you have to be there during the right time. Uh, like when the sun's setting. When the sun's setting, exactly. That's I think that's really critical for for good uh, successful beaver watching. But you know they're in all they're in forty nine fifty states except for Hawaii. So you know you, you can see them uh, just about anywhere. Wow. So okay, because I grew up in Texas. I lived in New York City for one year, and now since then I've lived in Los Angeles, like right in the middle of the city. But I live really close to a very big park. There's not a lot of water sources, though. Growing up in Texas, I was a lake kid, though. We had a boat. We would go out on lakes. But I don't know why. I don't think I've ever seen a freaking beaver. I do think I've seen a beaver dam before. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, you know, um, that's, and that's true of most why? people, right? You're, you know, you, you may not see the animal itself, but, but of course, there are these incredibly conspicuous uh, sort of forces on the landscape, right? So I think that even people who haven't seen the actual living rodent have, have uh, you know, some kind of basic beaver awareness because, again, I mean, they're, they're sort of hard to miss. Yeah, for sure. And so they're obviously mammals, but they have these very aquatic features to them, this big, flat, weird tail. It's almost platypus-like, and they have webbed feet, don't they? Yeah, they've got webbed hind feet, and then, they're, and then they're, their front feet or their, their hands are, are, are not webbed and are, are really sort of dexterous, you know, they're really good at manipulating wood and, and uh, even rocks, you know, it's, uh, people, people don't realize that beavers actually, you know, kind of often will lay down this, this foundation of rocks when they build a dam. So they're really good at, uh, you know, sort of transporting materials. Yeah, it's, it's always kind of crazy to watch me. Like, sometimes they'll actually stand up on their hind legs and use their front, their hands uh, to carry wood or, or, uh, or stones. And, and that's always kind of disorienting when you see that, you know, a beaver up on its <laughs> hind legs like a like a bear or something. That's pretty, that's pretty unusual. Though. <laughs> they are like little mini bears. I mean, I'm wondering, I'm looking at a picture of a beaver right now, and uh-huh. I'm like, wow, beavers are really weird looking. And I'm thinking, what animals are they related to? Like, what are they, do you know, what are they the closest to taxonomically? Yeah, I mean, so they're, they're rodents. Um, so they're, you know, they're, they're the largest member of the of the rodent family. Hmm. You know, they're the largest, the, or no, sorry, I, sorry, I, I misspoke. They're the, they're the largest North American rodent. Uh, the largest, oh, yeah, because capybara, right? Capybara, right. So, yeah, it's pretty so big. <laughs> all, you, all you rodent lovers out there, sorry about that, that brief slip of the tongue there. Um, <laughs> large North American rodent. And uh, yeah, I mean, like you said, they're just incredibly well adapted to this, this very unique uh, semi-aquatic lifestyle they have. You know, they've got um, this kind of the second set of uh, transparent eyelids, like goggles that can close over their eyes. They've got a... Um, Kind of a second set of, of lips. They can close behind their teeth, so they can they can they can chew and drag branches underwater without getting water down their throats. I always love mm. I love I love that beaver adaptation. I think that's so so ingenious. Evolution really nailed it, you know. Uh, yeah. So yeah, they're just you know they're just ex- exquisitely well adapted, and of course they've got that amazing tail. You know, the tail is really this incredible beaver appendage. It's it's um, it's an alarm system. You know, they slap it on the water when there's danger nearby to kind of warn nearby beavers. It's actually sort of a thermoregulatory device, so they, they exchange hot and cold through the, the through their tail uh, and uh, basically keep their you know keep their body temperature regulated. And it's this. Oh wow! This, is that from like blood vessels in the yeah, tail? Yeah, exactly. Kind of this this countercurrent heat exchange, like you know, mm-hmm. I mean, like like warm blooded fish have have kind of a similar a uh, similar structure. And then they actually they actually they actually use the tail for fat storage. Um, you know, they put on fat in their tails for the winter. 
uh, which is which is pretty cool. Another sort of bear-like thing. You know, they have to fatten up, uh, but beavers use their tails for that. So yeah, the tail is the tail is a really cool uh, appendage. It's it's pretty uh, pretty unique in the animal kingdom for sure. Yeah, and it's like there's no hair on it. It's kind of just, or is there? It just looks like a big thick leather weird appendage stuck to the back of them. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's sort of this this strange, this strange. Uh, Somewhat scaly thing, and and um, yeah, I mean that the, the scales. I, I believe the scales are keratin. Ah, oh, cool. So it's not just skin; it actually does have scales. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, not, not you know, not true scales. It's, it's sort of yeah. sort of modified, but um, yeah. That's so, well. that's why it looks like leather to me. You know, it's funny. I'm I'm looking at all these pictures of beavers online. I'm still trying to orient myself to like the beaver because it's just something I've literally never thought about until <laughs> I sat down to talk to you. And I'm noticing that in a lot of images of beavers that where they're out of the water, they're standing on their tails. They're like flipped underneath them, but then in others they're flipped back. So I guess that might just be like a weird. No, they do. You know, sometimes kind of, when they're when they're when they're chewing down trees, they do kind of use the tail as as a, a bit of a kickstand. Um, that's another, <laughs> another kind of useful useful function for it. So, oh, that's so funny. And of <laughs> course, baby beavers are basically the cutest thing I've ever seen. They're super cute. Yeah, there's there's <laughs> the, the the kind of the hard thing about baby beavers, you know, is you, you don't see them too often. They don't they don't actually start leaving the lodge till they're a few weeks old. Apparently, they're they're actually um, they're too buoyant to fully uh, get out of the lodge, right? So, so in a beaver lodge, you know, you've got this, you know, so a beaver lodge is kind of this big dome-like structure of, of sticks um, that, you know, often you'll see like a little island in a, in a, in a beaver pond. Um, and in, inside there, there's, you know, there's kind of this raised platform um, that they line with, with wood chips, like you'd put at the bottom of your, your hamster cage or something. Uh, and then there are little oh tunnels that lead out from that, from that nesting platform they go underwater and then, you know, beavers can, can swim down those tunnels and then pop out uh, in the pond. And, and uh, I've heard that baby beavers are actually too buoyant to really submerge and go down those tunnels and then come out the other side. So they have to stay in the uh, in the lodge for the first few weeks until they're able to to fully submerge. That is so cute. And it makes me think then that beavers are similar to many other larger mammals in that I'm assuming then they don't give birth to like a really huge litter and then, you know, only a few of them make it, but instead they actually really spend time caring for their young. Yeah, exactly. You know, I think two to two to four is pretty typical. And even on the, on the low side of that is more, more common. Two or three is a, you know, is a kind of typical beaver litter. Nice. Okay. I have a random question. Okay. Are beavers dangerous? Because <laughs> they have some <laughs> scary looking teeth. Have they ever been known? Like, do they... What do they eat? And have they ever been known to attack any other animals? Yeah. So, I, so I'd say first, you know, um, I mean, like, like any wild animal, they're, they're generally dangerous if you mess with them, right? If you just, okay. you know, if you just kind of uh, sit quietly by, by a beaver pond and let the beaver go about its business, it's, you know, it's kind of, it's not going to, it's not going to fuck with you. Um, <laughs> but, um, you know, there is, there is one beaver caused human fatality on record, um, which is a, a guy, a guy in Belarus, a fisherman who, mm -hmm. uh, picked one up to take a, to take a picture with it. Uh, and the beaver actually, uh, bit him on the leg and severed, uh, an artery. And he, oh my God. He so, um, wow. you know, so don't, so don't pick up beavers is sort of the, the lesson there. Um, but you know, of course they are, they are totally herbivorous. They just eat, uh, plant matter. You know, they love eating the inner barks of the inner bark of trees, like the cambium, which is kind of the layer of bark that does the growing. 
Uh, that's, oh, that's and it's a little there. softer, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And it's very sugary. You know, it's really, I mean, that's where the, the tree is growing new cells. So it's this really sort of nutritious layer. Um, but, you know, they'll also need all kinds of all kinds of woody or, or green plants, too, and all kinds of herbaceous stuff like, you know, cattails and water lilies and even poison ivy uh, is, a, is a beaver food. So they're pretty, you know, within the plant kingdom, uh, they're, they're kind of generalists. Hmm. So poison ivy is not poisonous to them? Apparently not. Yeah, I don't know. That's a that's a, a great question. It's like how exactly do they do they manage to in, ingest and digest poison ivy? Uh, and the answer is I don't know. Um, but, but you know what? It makes sense. Yeah, because something has to eat it. it. The you know it's 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 there for a reason, and totally. that is how ecosystems work. So that's I mean that's pretty interesting. So yeah, okay. And, beavers, and you know one of the things about beavers too is that they have you know they have these amazing microbiomes, right? I mean they're you know they're eating all kinds of, you know, all kinds of difficult uh, to digest stuff. They, they actually digest cellulose, um, you know, which is uh, a pretty neat trick. Um, and, you know, one of the ways they accomplish that is they actually eat their own, their own poop. Uh, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll eat, they'll poop out sort of this black, thick pudding-like substance, and then they'll re-ingest that. Uh, and when it comes out a couple of days later, it's, you know, it's more like sawdust. Um, so oh, that's, a, that's kind of a nifty uh, beaver trick as well uh, that oh, helps them break yeah. down, you know, sort of this, this really tough, fibrous plant matter. Yeah. So basically they're like cooking those bacteria inside of them and yeah. they're like sort of beaver fermenting in, they, in an effort. Ferment, to cause... They're fermenters. They're total fermenters. Exactly. That's really cool. Um, yeah, because it, you don't think about it, but eating wood is probably not very easy to do. No, <laughs> and yeah. even, even termites are full of gut bacteria that helps them digest that kind of stuff, aren't they? Mm. Um, I'm, I'm, I don't, I don't know much about the, ter- about the, the, the termite uh, digestive <laughs> system and microbiome, but I'm not surprised to hear that because yeah, so, you know that's one of the other one of the few animals that that really uh, is able to do what beavers do. Oh, that's so cool. And so, I mean, obviously, this is a really specific ecological niche. Like, I'm not thinking that I know of any other animals who take care of the things or who have the like behaviors that beavers have and sort of serve the function that they have within the ecosystem, which makes me think that they're really necessary and it's really important that their populations be maintained. Yeah, totally. And, you know, we, and, you know, we, haven't really, we haven't even really talked about kind of the signature beaver behavior, right? Which is, of course, you know, once they've peeled the bark off of these sticks, they then use those sticks to build dams, right? And, and, the, and those, those dams are this incredibly, completely unique um, structure in the animal kingdom. You know, nothing else really uh, makes anything quite like that. Um, and, you know, as you, as you say, they're this hugely important animal, right? I mean, they're, you know, they're, they're holding back huge amounts of water. They're creating these ponds and wetlands, uh, and, you know, I mean, the, the stat you always hear thrown around is that in the, in the American West, where, you know, where things are pretty dry, uh, wetlands comprise just 2% of total land area and support 80% of biodiversity, right? So it's, I mean, there are, the beavers are, are creating these super unique habitats that are being used by everything from songbirds to moose to frogs to trout. Um, you know, it's almost hard to name a, a species that, that doesn't benefit from uh, these really fantastic habitats that beavers are creating. So, yeah, they're, they're a completely unique animal. And, uh, you know, they're, they're what scientists call a keystone species, right? This animal that's, that's sort of disproportionately affecting the other members of the ecosystem, right? An animal that's kind of holding up this entire biological community with uh, this incredible dam building behavior. So, yeah, they're, pre- they're pretty rad is my, is my conclusion. 
<laughs> okay, so I want to break that down. So, okay, beaver dams, it's obviously the first thing you think of when you think of a beaver. You think totally. of wood, you think of a dam. But like for city folk like myself who don't spend a lot of time observing beaver dams, I don't think I've spent much time even thinking about how they're made, why they're made, what they do. Like we know what a dam is from a civil engineering perspective, but this is a natural dam. Why would a beaver build one and how do they even know to do it? Yeah, great, great question. So, I mean, the, the reason, there are a few different reasons, but the biggest reason, right, is that, is that beavers, you know, we've talked about all of their great sort of aquatic adaptations. They're these really uh, agile swimmers. They can stay underwater for 15, for 15 minutes is how long they can hold their breath. Um, so, you know, they're, they're really, they're these awesome swimmers. But when they're out on land, you know, they're kind of these fat, slow, smelly meat packages, right? And, and um, you know, wolves love beavers, coyotes eat beavers, bears, cougars, uh, lynx even sometimes. You know, they're kind of prey for just about any, any large carnivores. The idea is that, you know, by expanding and, uh, and deepening the extent of your watery habitat, if you're a beaver, you know, you're basically creating shelter for yourself, right? Um, you know, instead of, instead of having to waddle over to that aspen tree and, you know, and, and risk uh, being eaten by a, by a wolf, uh, you know, you can swim up to it instead and, and be, you know, comparatively safe. Uh, so, you know, there are a few different reasons that, that beavers build dams, but that's, you know, that to me, that seems like the primary one is basically just e- expanding the extent of, of this watery shelter. That's, that's so important if you're, uh, you know, if you're a delectable rodent. Um, and that really opens up the question of like animal intelligence and forethought and kind of frontal lobe activity. And, you know, these questions that we talk about a lot when we talk about cetacean intelligence, crow intelligence, ape intelligence, you know, the ability to pass the mirror test, all of these complicated cognitive questions. I mean, they know that they are expanding their territory by doing this. Yeah, you know, I mean, that's it's a no, it's a great, it's a great point. And there's and there certainly is um, a lot of debate in you know in the animal cognition world and the and the, the beaver community uh, about mm-hmm. about how smart beavers are, right? And there's this, you know, the, kind of the beaver detractors all point to this this one experiment, which is which was done by this guy named Lars Wilson, uh, who is this Scandinavian uh, you know, animal behavioral uh, scientist in the 1960s. And what, what basically what, what Lars did is he is he you know he put he put beavers in a room. Uh, and okay. he gave him some sticks and he played the sound of running water over a speaker uh, and the beavers all damned the speaker. So the point, so the point there is like, right, this, this behavior is, you know, is sort of deeply hardwired. It's, it's instinctive rather than uh, intelligent or learned. Um, but, you know, I, I also think that, I mean, I think that it's true that, 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 that basic, the basic dam building behavior is, you know, is, deeply ingrained in beavers. But, you know, it's also true that, I mean, there have been some great observations of, of beaver families, you know, of, of beaver kits, the baby beavers, uh, you know, observing and, and mimicking their parents and uh, actually learning kind of the, the finer points of, of dam and lodge construction. Uh, so there's, mm-hmm. you know, there's certainly some learning that happens. Uh, you know, there are reports of beavers, you know, doing some things that, that uh, you know, seem to require quite a bit of intelligence, you know, of, of, for example, of building, of using, using sticks to build platforms they can cut higher on a tree. You know, there are places where people have wrapped trees with, with wire to protect them from the beavers. And I've seen pictures of beavers that have kind of created little platforms for themselves so they can access the tree above the top of the wire, uh, which, you know, which is, which to me would indicate, uh, you know, a pretty, a pretty impressive intelligence. Um, so, you know, how, how smart are beavers? 
Yeah, it's you know, it's a, it's a big question. Um, I'm going to err on the side of crediting the beavers uh, for being yeah, I like pretty that. smart critters. Yeah, <laughs> it is an important question, but it's also such an anthropocentric question. And the truth of the matter is, whether this is quote unquote innate, whether this is learned behavior, most animals have culture. We've established that at least to some extent. So even if it's a behavior that was learned millennia ago it's been passed down and passed down and passed down but regardless i would argue that to be able to solve the types of problems that they have to solve to build these things in new unique environments with new challenges in front of them with new types of plant material you know whatever the case may be to adapt to habitat loss and to climate change that requires problem solving and they're doing it yeah for sure they're super super resilient animals i mean to me you know so the other the other kind of cool beaver behavior that people don't talk about as much is they're also amazing canal diggers. They'll, they'll dig these kind of remarkably intricate, uh, extensive networks of, of foraging canals. Um, you know, that, that, mm. so that, you know, they'll dig a canal right over to, you know, that, that cottonwood they want to cut down. And then, you know, and then they'll often use the dams to kind of keep water in the canal. So it's like the, the dam and the canal construction behaviors together are, you know, sort of meshing to create these really, uh, intricate, elaborate infrastructural networks, you know, that, that uh, to me are just quite impressive. And, and um, yeah, it seems like, it seems like it'd be hard for all that behavior to be, to be instinctive. And then, you know, there's this, there's this great book by, by a naturalist named Hope Ryden. She just passed away last year uh, called Billy Pond. And she just follows this, uh, you know, a couple of colonies of beavers around in upstate New York for, for years and years and years uh, and watches this sort of intergenerational transmission of knowledge um, and, you know, she'll, she documents, you know, baby beavers watching their parents and, and then immediately picking up those, the behaviors that their parents are displaying. So to me, you know, again, I just, I feel like, as you say, it's, it's almost, it's almost immaterial, right? Whether they're doing it, uh, instinctively or, you know, or, or through intergenerational knowledge transmission. I mean, the main point is they're doing it and it's this, you know, incredibly sophisticated behavior that's having just massive landscape scale impacts. I'm so glad you wrote this book, can I just say? And I'm so glad that you were sort of weirdly possessed with an interest to dig super, super deep. That's what I love so much about good science journalism and good science writing is that there is so much fascinating shit out there in the, in the world, in the universe. And... Sometimes we need a super deep dive. Otherwise, we gloss over all of this stuff. And of course, there are a few researchers who are really focusing on this. But to bring that stuff to the public is so incredibly important. I mean, we think of beavers as these animals that are just ubiquitous. They're everywhere. Every state has them. Lots of people even look at them like they're pests. Is there any risk? I mean, obviously, with habitat loss, with climate change, like we mentioned before, is there any risk that this keystone species could be suffering? Well, no, I mean, I mean, you know, to, so to me, I mean, one of the amazing things about beavers is that, is that, um, they're, you know, they're sort of these potential climate adaptation tools, right? I mean, certainly, you know, no, no species is, well, I don't want to say no species, but, you know, certainly, um, most species probably aren't thrilled about climate change and, you know, and, and beavers, I mean, I've, I've heard that in places, you know, they're because, because rainfall events are concentrated more heavily, uh, you know, beaver dams are blowing out more frequently and, and the beavers are thus having a harder time sort of remaining established in certain areas. It's possible that, that in some places, uh, you know, colonies could be negatively affected by climate change. But I think one of the really cool things about beavers is that, you know, is that, in, again, in some ways, there's sort of this climate adaptation tool, right? I mean, especially in the American West, you know, where it's, it's super dry, 
And, uh, you know, lots of places like, like California and central Washington and a lot of Oregon are really dependent on um, snowpack and glacial melts for their water, right? I mean, that's kind of critical as you get these, you know, these big snowfall events in winter. And then gradually that, that snow just melts over the course of the spring and summer and, and uh, basically keeps streams hydrated, you know, deep into the fall until the cycle starts over again. Right. Mm-hmm. But when that when that precipitation falls as rain rather than snow, often because of climate change, um, you know, just runs off the landscape immediately and you lose that really valuable sort of time release uh, of this of this melting snowpack. Right. So there are lots of people now who are thinking, well, you know, we're losing this fantastic snowpack water storage. How do we keep that water on the landscape? Oh, wait a second. There are these, you know, nifty little rodents that build, uh, that build dams and, and create these ponds that often store millions of gallons of water. Um, you know, so that's, that's kind of one of the, one of the, the big reasons that this book exists. Um, and one of the reasons that the, the kind of the beaver restoration movement is sort of ascendant right now, I think, is because there are lots of people thinking about the relationship between climate change, snowpack loss, and beavers as as adaptation strategy, which I think is is pretty pretty cool. You know, there's a lot we don't know about that yet. Um, mm-hmm. You know, how much can how much water do beavers really store in their ponds? Uh, it's something that hasn't been super well quantified. You know, to what extent can they really mitigate? You know, the the massive loss of climate change of, of snowpack. Right? I mean, beavers are not going to single handedly save us from climate change. Clearly, um, but you know, in some places they could be they could be pretty valuable. Oh, absolutely. But of course, climate change isn't the only way that we're completely transforming the ecosystem. We are encroaching on habitat all the time. We're utilizing habitat for, you know, forestry purposes and things like that. And I'm even reading here, you wrote about the fact that although the numbers of beavers today are relatively healthy, when, you know, North America was first settled, we trapped them for their fur and just decimated their numbers, didn't we? Yeah, completely. So that was, I mean, that was really, you know, in, in, in sort of the early colonies when, you know, when Europeans first arrived in North America, you know, beaver furs were, were sort of their most valuable resource along with, along with timber and, and cod, uh, you know, beavers really made colonization of the new world possible. When the uh, Massachusetts Bay colonists showed up, you know, they owed a lot of money to their creditors back in Europe. And the only way they could repay those debts was by shipping furs back across the country. You know, I mean, beaver, the kind of the drive for beaver pelts was in part behind the Louisiana Purchase. You know, that was, that was Thomas Jefferson wanting to secure new trapping grounds. You know, I mean, beavers even had a, a hand in the, the Revolutionary War. You know, one of the things that pissed off the colonists um, was the British restricting access to trapping grounds west of the Appalachians. Uh, you know, so this is this, this hugely important uh, economic industry that, that really drove a lot of the kind of the pre-Civil War course of American history. And of course, I mean, it was, you know, it was the, the, the fur trade was also a disaster for Native Americans. You know, I mean, it was really, it was fur traders who, who introduced smallpox and a lot of the, uh, a lot of the other diseases that, that uh, you know, nearly wiped out many tribes. So, you know, the story of, the story of, of beaver trapping, you know, is sort of this incredibly, integral story to uh, early early American history. It's fascinating. And of course, have they fully bounced back since then? Yeah. And, you know, I mean, the answer, the answer is no way, right? I mean, it's, it's mm. um, you know, I think that it, it, sort of, like, it sort of depends on, your, on what, your, what your framework is or what your, what your time period is, right? I mean, 
you know, so so when when Europeans first showed up, there were as many as four hundred million beavers uh, in in North America, um, which is just crazy to think about. You know, and, and to think about the amazing impact all those beavers would have had, how much water they would have stored, how how wet and lush the landscape would have been. I mean, three centuries later, you know, by by nineteen hundred, uh, the beaver population was was just a hundred thousand. Uh, most mm-hmm. of them in, in Canada. And, you know, beavers had been basically wiped out of, of nearly all of New England and the Southeast and the Rockies uh, and California. I mean, beavers had been, you know, been sort of just, they're virtually extinct throughout most of, most of uh, the United States. Um, wow. So, you know, today they're like, they're, I think, well, nobody really knows, but the estimates I've, I've read are about 15 million beavers in North America. So, I mean, that's a lot of beavers, right? They're not going to go, you know, they're not going to go extinct anytime soon. They're certainly not an endangered species. Uh, and, oh, but you know, it's can, far fewer beavers than people. Yeah, that's definitely true. You know, and it's yeah. and it's far and it's far fewer beavers than we used to have, right? I mean, it's you know, from one perspective, if you you know, if you look at what the, where they were at a hundred years ago, well, beavers are sort of this triumphant conservation story, right? This animal that we basically brought back from the the brink of oblivion and is now you know pretty ubiquitous in, in the United States. But you know, when you when you sort of broaden or widen your historical framework. Uh, you know, when you go back 500 years, well, you know, actually beavers are, are sort of catastrophically reduced uh, even even to this day. Right? Yeah, so, so that's 400 million before the trapping. And I would assume, I mean, I don't have any evidence to back this up. So I'd love it if you maybe you maybe you know, maybe you don't know. But 400 million before European settlers started trapping. Is my assumption correct that indigenous peoples, you know, um, First Nation, uh, Native Americans, probably also trapped or had some sort of relationship with beavers, but of course, didn't affect their numbers by and large. So 400 million in a very harmonious kind of relationship with uh, with indigenous populations here down to 15, wait, down to 100,000, and then back up to 15 million right. with modern society. So you're right, 400 million, 15 million, that's a massive difference. Totally. Yeah. You know, I think, I mean, since, since you brought up the kind of the Native American connection, you know, I think one mm-hmm. of the one of the really cool things is that, you know, different, I mean, of course, different tribes had different relationships with beavers, right? I mean, in, you know, in, in the Northeast and in kind of the Canadian boreal forest, you know, where, where things are sort of densely wooded and really wet, you know, there, yeah, there definitely was uh, beaver, beaver hunting, and they were this, you know, this important um, food source. And, uh, and, and fur source as well. But, you know, out, out in the American West on the, on the Great Plains, you know, where, where the landscape is super dry, uh, you know, there were tribes like the, like the Blackfeet that, that didn't eat beavers at all. You know, that basically treated, that actually, actually considered beavers sacred. Um, uh-huh. you know, the Blackfeet, I mean, beavers were sort of, beavers were sort of fundamental to, to, to Blackfeet religion or, or are, are still to this day. Uh, and, you know, to me that, I mean, that it's clear that, 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 is the result of, of deep ecological knowledge. You know, the Blackfeet uh, ethnographer Rosalind Lapierre spoke about this with me, and she's done all kinds of amazing research. You know, showing the ways in which in which um, you know the Blackfeet reverence for beavers sort of encodes this amazing understanding um, that, of course, beavers create these watery habitats that, in the West, are pretty unusual and really essential uh, for for life. You know, so when the when the when the white people got out to the to the, the northern Great Plains, you know, and, and they, they basically wanted to trade for furs with the Blackfeet, the Blackfeet said, "No, we're not going to, you know, we're just not going to trap for you." Uh, and you know, the the white traders were like, "Well, you know, geez, you're you're um, you know, here's like you guys are not you're being lazy, basically, you're not helping us out." Um, but of course, the reason was was that the Blackfeet understood how important this animal uh, was and, and revered it because it was such an important yeah. uh, water storer. 
So I thought that I thought that was. I mean, talking about talking to Rosalind was just incredibly fascinating and and uh, and mind blowing. You know, the ways in which in which ecological knowledge gets encoded in, in cultural practice uh, and, you know, in some ways changes the course of, of history. Oh, absolutely. And it does show how much kind of our scientific understanding can, I think, sometimes be broadened beyond the Western's perspective. Like the fact that, like you said, this ecological knowledge kind of predates even colonial settlement here in the United States. And like, I do think we could learn an awful lot from looking back to some of these early cultural practices. Um, because you're yeah. right, these are a keystone species. They were really, they are really really important, especially in a time of just phenomenal drought. And I say that sitting here in my house in Los Angeles, where, you know, we struggle so much with water conservation here. And knowing that the beavers are literally in the background helping us out every day, and we don't even think about it, it kind of makes me feel ashamed. <laughs> yeah, give the beavers some freaking credit already. Right? I know, I know. <laughs> All right, guys, I want to take a quick break to thank the sponsor of this week's episode. And who is it? None other than my favorite socks, Bombas. You've heard me talk about them because I love them. They're the most comfortable socks in the history of feet, or at least in the history of my feet. I can say that with 100% assurance. So here is why. They've got a honeycomb arch support system, so they, they hug you nice and tight around your arch of your foot. It feels so good. They've got a cushioned footbed. They've got a Y-stitched heel. The cotton's really soft. It's warm in the winter, but it's cool in the summer. They really are all seasons. And they've got this great stay-up technology, so they don't leave a mark. They don't gouge into your foot, but they also don't slide down, whether you're wearing you know, knee-high socks or calf-high socks or ankle socks or even the no-show socks. Uh, I wear those all the time inside of my shoes. Uh, but my favorite part, it, other than the fact that they're so comfortable and they look good, like they come in all sorts of different colors and styles, is that they have a one-to-one -one program. Socks, of course, are the number one most requested item in homeless shelters, but you can't donate your used socks because gross. That's why Bombas donates one pair of brand new socks for every pair that they sell. So to date, they've sold and donated over 7 million pairs. That's a really big deal. I wear them every day. I'm actually wearing them right now. They're this really cute, like, blue color, but they come in every color and, you know, so many different styles. Go online right now and check out their great variety. And guys... I don't know what you're waiting for because you get 20% off of your first order. Maybe you've already done it, but I have a feeling that plenty of you haven't. You've just got to go to bombus.com slash nerdy and use the code nerdy. So again, for 20% off, go to bombas.com slash nerdy. All right, guys, let's get back to the show. So I'm looking at some of these other really cool, like your publisher sent along this great little like beaver facts infographic, which oh, I'm yeah, sort of, cool. <laughs> yeah, it's super helpful. And so like, I'm learning a couple of interesting things. We've talked about a lot of them, but let's take a minute to talk about, I'm going to see if I can pronounce it correctly. Castorium? Castorium? Oh, yeah. yeah, Castorium. How do you yeah. pronounce it? Um, yeah, Castorium. Okay. Castorium. Yeah. That's what I, yeah, that's what I say. And other people, I mean, other people pronounce it, pronounce it differently. Um, you know, I've heard people say castorum without the, without the E. That's how a lot of, a lot of trappers say it. But, um, yes, yeah, so that's, that's basically, that's the substance produced by the beaver's castor sacs, um, which is sort of these, these scent producing glands, uh, and, and castorium is, that's what beavers use to, 
uh, mark their territories. Basically, it's you know they're very they, they have very poor eyesight, but amazing senses of smell. So they, they're these very kind of scent oriented animals uh, that use castoreum to yeah to mark the territories. Actually, it's it, you know they kind of groom it into their into their fur. Uh, it's this really this really cool complex substance that's that's really important to to uh, beaver life. So cool, and so it also like has these central ingredients. It's it, it says that salicylic acid is contained within it because they, of course, eat willow bark or not willow bark, but the inside of the willows. Um, and salicylic acid we use all the time. It's in aspirin. It's in like zit cream. It's in like a lot of medicine that's in the medicine cabinet. Oh, I think it's in like wart remover. Totally. Yeah. So, so, so it's not surprising then that, you know, that, that it was kind of considered, I mean, for a long time, um, you know, castorium was considered medicinal, right? I mean, that was really, even, even back in Europe, you know, so, so in Europe, there's, there's a, a different beaver species. It's castor fiber, um, which is the, the Eurasian beaver. Uh, and back there, you know, cat, the Eurasian beavers were basically wiped out. Um, they, they came even closer to extinction than our North American beavers did. And the primary reason for hunting them there uh, yeah, it was partly pelts, but it was also, it was really mostly castorium. It was really, it was really this, you know, this, this scent gland um, whose secretions were thought to have medicinal properties, you know? So, so as you say, I mean, there's, you know, there's salicylic acid in there. So, you know, maybe that wasn't totally junk science, um, but yeah. they did sort of use it as this, you know, they used it to like treat everything from you know, <laughs> constipation to epilepsy, you know? So there was definitely some, uh, <laughs> some, junk science involved in the uh, in the medicinal use of castorium but you know maybe it wasn't uh, entirely entirely fictitious so it's funny i i just looked up castor oil because i was like is that where castor oil comes from and it's not but it apparently let me see it comes from the castor oil plant right. um but the plant gets its name because okay let me see uh, from which the plant gets its name, probably comes from its use as a replacement for castorium, the perfume base that is uh, made from the dried perennial glands of the beaver. OMG. So apparently <laughs> people take those glands and make perfume out of them, or at least they used to. Yeah, it was, you know, perfume. I mean, and per- it's, it is still to this day used used in some in some perfumes, and it was also used as a as a kind of a flavor additive in in van- vanilla ice cream and uh, and fruit <laughs> fruit flavored sodas wow. and all all kinds of all kinds of stuff. Um, and you know, it, it does have. I mean, you you would think that you know that like a beaver butt, basically a beaver uh, caster sack, you know, would would be kind of gross, but it actually it actually does smell very good. It's it's sort of this interesting musky, almost like it's like. You know, it's like uh, like saddle leather crossed with vanilla extract or something. Oh, it's kind, so of, it's a, kind of sweet pretty, and musky. Yeah, it's a pretty unique scent. Um, so, so uh, you know, you smell it and you and you sort of get that it you know it could have some some uh, some uses. <laughs> oh, poor little guys! And poor I'm guys. saying, guys, is that fair? Is there um, sexual dimorphism in beavers? Can you tell a boy from a girl when you're standing on the side of a of a lake or a pond? Yeah, no, that's that's one of the one of the funky things about beavers for sure is that is that beavers so male beavers um, do not have external genitalia, uh, mm. which you know which kind of makes sense when you think about it, right? I mean, if you're you know if you're an animal that spends its entire life swimming around log jams, you know you don't want any any sort of like little dangling uh, appendage <laughs> that you can get snagged on something, you know. So yeah, so beavers uh, beavers have internal genitalia, um, which does which does make it uh, impossible to to visually sex them uh, unless the female's lactating. 
Mm. So the, the way you should tell the way, that, the way that you tell them apart, if you if uh, if the opportunity ever arises, which you know you never know, um, <laughs> if you you basically have to um, squeeze their anal glands. They, so they have two sets. They have two sets of scent secreting glands. They have these castor sacs that we've been talking about. Mm-hmm. And they have another set um, called anal glands. That they also use to mark their territories. And you squeeze out, you squeeze a bit of this anal secretion out of the anal gland, uh, and you sniff it. And it, it, if it smells like motor oil, uh, it's a male beaver. And if it smells like old cheese, it's a, it's a female beaver. Um, <laughs> so they can tell really easily because they can probably yeah. smell that um, pretty closely. They can, yeah, they can, I mean, I mean, they can not only tell male from female. I mean, they can, they can tell related beavers from non-related beavers. You know, they can basically yeah. like they can distinguish you know their their first cousins um, from you know from non non cousins. Yeah, I ha- I had the opportunity to to sex some beavers uh, in Central Washington, and and I could not um, readily discern the the uh, aroma of motor oil. But um, you know, if, if you're if you're an experienced beaver sexer, um, you, you can you can totally tell the difference to within you know ninety nine point nine percent accuracy. Well, at least there is a, a kind of a shortcut for doing it. I mean, it does involve a little bit of invasive, I guess, um, behavior. I had a friend when I was. Um, back in Texas working on my master's uh, who was in a kind of a partner lab. I was in a neuro lab and she was in a molecular lab and she did a lot of work with flamingos. And apparently the only way to sex a flamingo is to actually is to look at their DNA. Oh, really? So yeah, yeah. So beavers, are, beavers are much easier than that. Yeah, um, yeah. So you don't have to take a blood sample. And, well, and you couldn't even do it from a blood sample with a beaver because they're mammals. Birds have nucleated blood cells, so you can do it from a mm. blood sample. But yeah, so, <laughs> so it is a little bit easier, but you have to have a, uh, you know, a nose for it, I suppose. It's, right. You have to, to, to sniff the, the terroir of the, of the beaver. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> so, I need I need more practice at this. Clearly, it, clearly, that's just that that should become your new hobby, Ben. None yeah. of your friends would think that was weird at all. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, I am interested. We've been talking quite a bit about like kind of the history of what we know about this really fascinating creature, sort of its um, position as a keystone species. But what is sort of, I don't know, new on the horizon? Is there any interesting new research that's being undertaken? Like, where is the science of beaverdom right now? Where is it going? Yeah, that's, a, that's an awesome question. I think that we, we know enough about how beavers change the landscape to know that they're these really important animals that have all kinds of useful functions. Um, but, you know, we're, we're still, I think we're still really figuring out exactly we're, we're trying to quantify those benefits you know mm-hmm. um for example we know we know that beavers store groundwater right we know that you know so when you when you look at a beaver pond i mean of course there's all of the visible surface water you can see but then there's all of the water that's being sort of forced into the ground recharging aquifers raising water tables you know and that's super important i mean one one study estimated that that um you know beavers are storing five to ten times more water below ground than above it, right? So there's so much water down there. But, you know, how much of that water is is making it to downstream users? How much is being consumed on site? You know, how much is actually sort of recharging aquifers? That's the kind of thing that we're still trying to figure out. You know, I think, I think another big one is, is beavers and wildfire. You know, we, we, we know that these wetlands can be important fire breaks, right? I mean, there's so many you know, anecdotal stories about, about fires that will, you know, burn up to a beaver pond and then basically can't go any further. And, you know, the other side of the pond will, will remain green because the mm-hmm. pond basically served as this fire break. Uh, you know, so there's, there's lots of interest now in, in beavers as sort of these 
these wildfire adaptation strategies, you know, which is so timely given the fact that like the entire West is on fire right now. Um, you know, but like to, to the, I mean, how, how much of a difference can beavers really make, you know, how it's, what's the sort of the, the extent of that, of that potential ecosystem service, you know, that's the, that's another, another big open question. So I think that we're, you know, again, I think that we know enough to know that, that beavers are, are awesome and helpful, um, but, you know, how awesome and helpful they are exactly uh, is what we're trying to figure out right now. Yeah, there's definitely more more to know. Um, there's always more to know, but it's cool to think about the fact that there's more to know about how they can help us. I mean, that's kind of like a shitty thing to say, but there's also probably so much fundamental knowledge that that we could continue to dig into that's just interesting for its own sake or interesting for the ecosystem as a whole, not necessarily narcissistically <laughs> <laughs> no, it's true. I mean, yeah you know i think i think that um you know that that my my book and you know and, and lots of people in the the uh, beaver believer community as the beaver lovers call themselves you know i mean we, yeah we do we do think about beavers as these tools that we can use mm-hmm. you know, for for water quality improvement and water storage and wildfire breaks and you know all of these great these great benefits and you know and that's and that's all true and that and that's you know and that's and that's and those are really important things to think about when you're trying to you know, convince a, a, a farmer or a rancher uh, to, to let beavers live on, on his farm or ranch, you know, or you're talking to, you know, a town manager who just wants to trap beavers out of the, the road culverts that they're damming in, you know, I think it's, I think it's important to be able to speak in those ecosystem services uh, in, in that language, um, because that's how you convince a lot of beaver skeptics that these are actually really useful animals. But, you know, you're right that, 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 um, you know, we don't want to lose sight of, of just how awesome they are uh, for their own sakes and on their own merits. You know, they're these incredibly fascinating, cool, unique animals that, um, yeah, I mean, you know, regardless of what they do for us, you know, the, certainly they, they deserve they deserve to, to be be part of our landscapes. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, you mentioned these like beaver skeptics and these people who do want to trap them or they want to get rid of them. They see them as a nuisance animal. And I don't think we've spent kind of enough time really talking about that. I think that almost every wild species runs up against this issue, Um, especially I think with agricultural land. You know, you see it around here with our puma or cougar population. Um, you see it a lot of times with wolves. We saw a big issue with wolves in Yellowstone and how they were almost eradicated and now they're being brought back. Um, yeah, I loved, so, I loved, I loved your, your uh, Nate Blakesley interview. That was, yes. uh, that was a great conversation. Yeah. Oh, it was so interesting to learn all about um, just the fate of wolves in Yellowstone, which I really was kind of, I didn't really know about before. So, I mean, it must be an issue that beavers are often trapped or killed because maybe they flood nearby lands or maybe they, you know, eat the trees on some people's property and they're not too keen on that. So what, what is the conflict that we see between human beings and beavers? Yeah, there, there, there are all kinds of different conflicts, you know, as, as you say, I mean, flooding people's property is a, is a really big one, uh, cutting down, you know, ornamental or fruit trees. People often complain about that. Um, you know, beavers love, so they love damming in road culverts, right? The culverts are just kind of those, like those cylindrical pipes that you'll see running under roads, you know, from one side of a stream to another. Mm. And, uh, you know, beavers love, they love damming in those things. And, you know, oftentimes that results in the road being washed out. That's the, probably the most common beaver conflict. It's just road, road damage. But can't we just put grates up over those? 
Well, yeah, then they, you know, and, and that and that is that is one of the strategies. But they kind of they, you know they often they often bam on the greats, and oh, you know they're, gotcha. they're they can they can be kind of tough to tough to thwart. Um, mm-hmm. You know, so the so so you're right that the kind of the usual response to those sorts of conflicts is is trapping. Um, you know, which which might sort of solve the problem in the short term, but you know. You're basically putting up a vacancy sign for the next beaver family, right? They'll, they'll always, as long as the habitat's there, they'll, they'll, there will always be beavers coming back, and you know, and you kind of end up on this this endless treadmill of just uh, trapping and recolonization. And I so, feel like, wouldn't you know, we rather stay on an endless treadmill of just taking down the dams? Well, but but even that, I mean, they can they can they can rebuild so quickly, you know. If oh, you, really? Yeah, I mean, if you if you tore out if you tore out a dam in a road culvert, you know, it'd be it'd be back a couple nights later. Uh, <laughs> that so, sucks. Yeah, they they drive people crazy for that for that reason because yeah, they're they're just totally they're you know totally uh, inexhaustible basically. Um, but you know, because but but there are, I mean there are definitely better solutions, and you know your your idea of, of putting up a grate is you know that's that's sort of um, you know it's really on the right track, right? I mean the kind of the the big advance in beaver coexistence technology now is this thing called a flow device, which is basically, it's kind of this pipe and fence system um, mm-hmm. that basically drains water through a culvert or from one side of a dam to another. And, you know, it's sort of like the grate, but by putting a, a pipe, uh, you know, ideally a, a nice long uh, sort of wide diameter pipe through the fence that you build, you know, you're basically like sneaking water past the beaver mm-hmm. right? and beavers are conditioned by evolution to try to repair leaks at the dam. Right. And yeah. you know, the idea that like the site of the leak might actually be the aperture of this pipe, you know, 15 feet upstream doesn't really, ideally doesn't really register uh, with, with them. So that's, you know, so that's kind of a, a cool, a cool solution. Um, yeah, and it seems really great. low tech and kind of inexpensive. Yeah. It's, you know, it's like, you know, a couple thousand bucks, you hire somebody to put one of these things in and that basically, you know, that basically solves your problem for the next, the next 10 years, rather mm-hmm. than, you know, having to first trap out beavers all the time. And second, you know, uh, deal with the road damage every time the beavers, you know, succeed in, in washing out the road. Um, so, you know, there've been lots of, well, I don't want to say, I don't want to say lots. There have been several studies. We, we need more studies uh, to convince, you know, more um, transportation departments and property owners. Uh, mm-hmm. But there have been, a, there have been a few studies about the sort of the effectiveness of these flow devices. And what they've basically found is that, you know, for every, every dollar, uh, you sink into a flow device, you know, you, re- you return many, many, many dollars um, in avoided trapping costs and road maintenance costs. And, uh, and also, of course, you're, you're protecting all this habitat, right? I mean, that's the whole point of the beaver, right? Is that they're creating this, this fantastic habitat that you want to remain in place. And uh, the flow device basically allows some of that habitat to remain, you know, you're draining the pond a little bit, but you're only draining it, you know, to to uh, a level that that you can tolerate, you know, there's still there's still some pond there, and the beavers can remain in place and keep doing their thing. Yeah, that's important. I mean, okay, this this raises a kind of maybe it's a dumb question on my end, but so beavers build these dams out of wood. How are they waterproof? What else do they put in there? Yeah, I mean, they definitely definitely kind of you know patch them up with with mud as well. Uh, okay, to seal them, but but they're not, you know, but the, I mean, but the dams. The dams aren't, they're, they're still permeable. They're not, um, you know, they're not totally waterproof. I mean, you know, you know, people always complain about beavers, you know, stealing water, right? I mean, uh, uh, the thinking being that every drop of water behind a beaver, a beaver dam is not going to make it downstream. Um, but, you know, you, I mean, when you, when you, you know, when you're on a stream that has beaver dams on it, you know, you'll, I mean, you'll always see flow continuing below the beaver dam. Uh, so, you know, plenty yeah. of water is still, is still escaping. Um, but, you know, they are definitely holding back a lot. 
they're, you know, they're sort of like delaying the water's progress downstream more than they are actually uh, stopping it up, you know. Interesting. So they're just, they're kind of like leaky. They're a bit leaky, but they they're still totally kind of work. Leaky. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. You know, just, I mean, just okay, like, that just makes like, more sense to me. I was like, uh, how do they manage this? Right. right. You know, I mean, just, uh, just like human dams, right? I mean, you know, we've got, we build, you know, the, the Hoover Dam still has, uh, you know, water flowing through the, the, the turbines and it has a spillway and, and all that, you know? So yeah, they're not, uh, they're not, they're not plugging up streams. They're just sort of slowing them down. Got it. Got it. Okay. That makes perfect sense. So, okay, Ben, I have been enjoying chatting with you so much. This is so fascinating. I'm loving the book. I'm loving all of this beaver trivia. You are probably so fun at parties. Uh, (laughs) I'm sure that that I'm pretty, I'm I'm like, I'm like fun the first time you talk to me. And then at at the the next party, it's like, okay, we we need to talk about fucking anything else besides Besides beavers, I, we've heard we've heard the anal gland facts. We we you know we know about uh, the the fur line, second set of lips. Let's just let's just let's just get back to you know the Mueller investigation. That oh my gosh, that's so funny because it reminds me of we're recording this on Thursday, August second, and um, it reminds me of a tweet that Katie Mack. I just read it. Uh, maybe it was yes yesterday. It says. Um, and if you guys remember Katie Mack, she was on the show super early on. She's an astrophysicist, um, good friend of mine. She said, it's always fun to make new friends and get to know their likes and dislikes and find out what music they enjoy and experimentally determine their exact threshold for being bombarded with space facts before they start <laughs> slowly inching away from me toward the door. <laughs> so you probably have friends who are super into beavers just like you, and that's a good thing. Yeah. And, you know, I think I think totally. And, and um, you know, I think like the fun the fun thing for me has been like, you know, sort of converting some of my um, beaver agnostic friends into into beaver appreciators. You know, and, and that's yeah. yeah, that's been that's been super rewarding. But I definitely know what uh, what what Katie's talking about. You know, <laughs> definitely like been at been at bars where the you know person I'm talking to starts like signaling for the check uh, in the middle of the, the beaver conversation. So. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, but this isn't obviously. You are a conservation journalist. You write a lot about um, the environment. Um, obviously, beavers fit well into that kind of milieu, but you also are a fiction writer. What what kind of um, fiction do you focus on? Thanks for bringing that up. I mean, I, I write. Um, you know, I write. I write environmental fiction. You know, I write. I write stories about the same kinds of things that I that I cover. You know, and I think that as a journalist, you can tell a certain kind of story um, with a certain kind of resonance. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that when you write fiction, you can tell uh, you can tell stories about similar themes, but with different kinds of emotional resonances, you know, um, you can, you can get inside the heads of characters in different ways. You can tell stories about non-human characters in different ways, you know, and that's, I mean, one of the things that I think about a lot is, is, you know, as a, as an environmental journalist, I mean, I'm, I spend a lot of time preaching to the choir, right. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm writing mostly for, you know, the audience audiences who subscribe to publications that, um, you know, they, they, I mean, they, they're sort of inclined to agree. They, you know, they acknowledge the veracity of climate change and they, and they care about conservation and they're sort of predisposed to, uh, you know, to, to pick up what I'm, what I'm putting down, you know, and I think there's, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, I think that, um, you know, like one, one line from, uh, you know, like one, one thing that Bill McKibben said once that that's always stuck with me is that, you know, is that it's, is that, it's important to get the choir to sing louder, you know, yeah. um, that, that you preach to the choir, but, but, uh, you know, like, I mean, if I can, if I can take a bunch of, you know, a bunch of people who are environmentalists and, you know, maybe know a little bit about beavers, but don't really care and turn them into, 
you know, into real beaver believers, that's, that's awesome. But, you know, I also think it's important to reach different kinds of audiences too. You know, and I think that, I think that, that, that fiction, um, I think it's, I think it's possible to do that and to do that in fiction. And, and, um, you know, right now I'm like sort of playing around with different, um, you know, kinds of, uh, you know, like different sorts of genre fiction, you know, um, everything from, you know, from, from science fiction or speculative fiction to, um, you know, to, to, uh, even like the, the romance novel, you know, is, is sort of this, this genre that's read by a really, uh, distinct audience and is not, who's not necessarily dyed in the wool conservationists. And, you know, maybe, I mean, maybe there are opportunities to sort of embed these environmental messages in, you know, in, in romance novels. Um, you know, so I'm sort of, yeah, I'm kind of in the middle of, of a few different uh, genre experiments that uh, I will keep you posted about. <laughs> That's very um, cool. And it must be a really good outlet, too, because, you know, you, you still get to maintain your fundamental interest and you still get to maintain your focus. But like you said, it, it has broader impact, but also it probably exercises some more kind of creative or I shouldn't say that because I do think that science journalism is like uber creative but it, it's a different approach which is probably kind of fun to flex those muscles yeah com- completely you know it's also it's a, just a, it's a nice it's a nice escape too i mean obviously you know when you're an environmental journalist you spend lots of time um writing really depressing things uh and you know the beaver book, yeah. is a, the beaver book is kind of a nice antidote to that in some ways because you know the beaver story is ultimately i think a kind of a, a story of optimism and hope and restoration you know here's this animal that's that after nearly being wiped out has, has sort of returned with gusto to our landscapes and, you know, provides all of these really invaluable services that we're learning to appreciate. So that's, you know, that's kind of a, a nice, a nice story, but, you know, but I also spent a lot of time uh, in 2017 writing about uh, the, the vaquita, which is, which is this little Mexican porpoise that is, you know, is, that uh, is basically going to be the next, the next uh, charismatic species to go extinct. And that's a completely, depressing intractable story that uh you know that that reporting basically left me feeling uh like you know the everything is hopeless mm-hmm. so you know it's 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 uh it's nice to be able to escape that kind of dire narrative sometimes and you know and fiction can be a, a great way of, of exploring other other ways of being or, or possibilities Okay, so speaking of the dire narrative, um, you I, uh, you mentioned that you, you've listened to my show before, so you may know what's coming, but I love to close out each episode by asking my guests the same two questions. Um, and the first one may have a dire answer, especially as a conservation <laughs> journalist. But yeah. I would love to know from you and from somebody with your, I think, keen perspective, somebody who thinks about these issues quite often. Number one, when you look to the future, what is the thing that really is disconcerting? What are you most worried about? What keeps you up at night? But on the flip side of that, what are you super hopeful and like legitimately optimistic about? Yeah, I should have, you know, I, I, I knew that those questions were coming and I, and I should have, I should have I should have yes. prepared. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. Catching you off guard. Totally. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I mean, so in, in re the first one, I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's just given, given the, the, uh, sort of like the, the omnipresent heat waves sweeping the planet right now. And the, and of course the wildfires that are just sort of ravaging the, the West. I mean, it's, you know, it's hard to say anything other than climate change. You know, I think that, I think that we're, um, it's, you know, it's hard because like, I mean, it seems like every single year we say, oh, this is, this is the year when the climate impacts are so evident that, you know, that, 
they will become inescapably obvious to the entire public and climate change will go from being this somewhat fringe political issue to a, a, a truly mainstream one. So I don't want to say that this is the year that, you know, that climate change is really obvious because it was, you know, it was obvious 10 years ago, but, um, but every year it's more obvious than the year but before. Every year it's every year it's more obvious. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And the other thing too, of course, is that, you know, is that, um, you know, our, our, our window for action uh, is basically closed, right? I mean, there's, you know, there's, there's essentially no way uh, to, to hold warming to, you know, within the two degree threshold that, you know, we know is, is so, is so critical. Um, so of course, there's, you know, there's, there's still, I mean, there's still a whole spectrum of possible outcomes on the scale of, you know, like kind of fucked to totally fucked. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it's, it's not, it's not like a, a fait accompli at this point, right? I mean, there's, you know, there's all kinds of different ways they can go, but, you know, it's, it's sort of just unavoidably apparent now that whatever way it goes, it's, it's going to go really badly. Um, so. Yeah. Yay. Yeah. I'm excited. Um, <laughs> super depressed. Give me something right. good now. <laughs> okay. Um, okay. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to try. I mean, can I, I mean, can I, I don't know, you know, I, I guess, um, I guess because, you know, because I, I just love beaver so freaking much, but I mean, I mean, to me, like, one of the one of the cool things about about spending all of this time working on on beaver stuff, you know, is I did and I just I just met. I mean, and, you know, setting setting the beavers themselves aside, I met all of these fantastic people. You know, I met I met all of these people who are just so committed to 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 conservation and uh, and and water management and you know sustainable forestry management and wildlife. I mean, it's just. Um, you know, one of the, one of the great things about writing a book about restoration is that you meet lots of people who are working on restoration and who are, you know, kind of by definition, um, at least optimistic enough about our future not to give up, uh, you know, and, and, um, I mean, this is maybe it's kind of a cliche to say that, uh, you know, like the people working hard to make change are the ones who inspire me, but you know, it really is true. I really, I really, I'm sort of fortunate and privileged to have met so many, you know, fantastic champions of the natural world who are, who are really working so hard to, you know, to restore ecosystems. And, um, you know, that, that gives me hope that uh, there are so many people out there who are, who are just uh, incredibly thoughtful and, and hardworking and, and passionate and, uh, and not yet despondent. Um, yeah. So I think that's, I think that's cool. Absolutely. Uh, well, gosh, Ben, this was such a fascinating chat. It was a chat that for me in many ways, it's interesting because I don't know, I know it sounded like uh, I was saying it came out of left field. Obviously, the themes and the outcomes of this conversation are things that I think about quite often, things that we talk about on the show quite often. But the specific focus is one that I think is so exciting because it's not something most of us think about regularly. I'll probably get some feedback from people who are like, I think about beavers all the time. I have a beaver pond <laughs> near my backyard. And yeah, cool. Good for you. I'm happy about that. But I think for totally. a lot of us, it just literally doesn't cross our mind. And it's it's further reinforcement of the kind of awe and wonder that we experience when we take a minute to just walk around outside, to just observe our surroundings and see that there is this incredibly complicated, incredibly inspiring uh, system that we are just a small part of. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, and, and, and the fact that there are, you know, I think that we get so sort of like locked into this, this mindset of, of human supremacy, you know, where we're sort of like these godlike figures that, you know, that bestride the landscape and, uh, you know, and, and that we're sort of unique in our ability to influence our, our surroundings, you know, and, and I mean, certainly beavers aren't, 
you know, quite like us in their environmental impacts. They're actually a lot better, I think, in, in most respects. Um, but, uh, you know, but, but they are, I mean, to me, that's, that's one of the fantastic things about them is that they're this great reminder that, you know, that animal behavior is, is more complex than we can really understand and that animal minds are, are remarkably sophisticated and that, you know, there are other, there are other creatures that are, are sort of, landscape scale influencers of the environment and you know and that um, i think beavers keep us humble in a way absolutely well guys the book is eager the surprising secret life of beavers and why they matter ben how can people find out more about the work that you do where are you in the interwebs these days yeah, um, well, I have a, a website, uh, which is uh, bengoldfarb.com. And then I'm, I'm on Twitter at uh, ben underscore a underscore goldfarb. Uh, but also, you know, don't don't find me, go find some beavers, you know, that's that, that would be my, my call to action from this conversation, <laughs> you know, is, is get out there and, uh, you know, find your local pond or wetland and, and take some time to observe these amazing animals and their natural element because you, you won't regret it. I think that's, that's, that's time better spent than on Twitter. <laughs> that is excellent <laughs> advice, I have to say. Well, Ben, thank you so much for joining me. This was such a fun chat. Thanks for having me. That was great. Of course. And everybody listening, thank you for coming back week after week. I really look forward to the next time we all get together to talk nerdy. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.